You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, if you have a Bible, let's go ahead and open it to Hebrews chapter 4 as we continue in our series in the, in the book of Hebrews. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11, verses 6 through 11. Hebrews 6, sorry, Hebrews 4, verses 6 says this. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Now look back at verse 5 and try to remember what we talked about last week. Verse 5 says, and again in this passage, quoting Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest. Then verse 6, so it's connected, right? Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, to enter the rest. And we talked about the last week and we're going to review it right now. What is this rest that the author of Hebrews is talking about? And the easiest way for us to understand this is this concept, theological concept, that we all have to understand to understand our Bibles called the now and the not yet, or the already and the not yet. So what does that mean in this context? What is this rest? He's talking about rest that Jesus gives those who come to Jesus. So what did Jesus say? Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's right. So Jesus says, when you come to him, you will have rest for your souls. But yet, there's also, so that's the now, but there's also a not yet. The not yet is that there's yet a future, eternal rest that we don't have yet. We're not there yet. So let's talk about end times theology for a second. There is, in a sense, a second promised land for God's people. And what I mean by that is this. There's coming a day when God, he says, that he's going to remake this world. Eternity is not spent in heaven, away from this earth, okay, Eternity is spent here because the Bible says that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. God is going to remake everything, and we will enjoy him forever in a new heavens and a new earth. You can read about that in the final chapters of the Bible, Revelation 20, 21, 22. But Jesus will return one day, make all things right. The scale of justice will, will finally be balanced and he will bring all those to, that are his to himself, some raised from the dead to life, and others who are living will be transformed in a moment to have resurrected bodies like Jesus' resurrected body. That's 1 Corinthians 15, talks all about that. And we will live with him in this new heavens and new earth, kind of like a second promised land, a fulfilled promised land, and and what does the Bible say? It will be rest. 
it will be rest. No more slavery to sin. No more slavery to broken relationships. No more abuse. No more cancer. No more car accidents. No more miscarriages. No more suffering and anxiety that brings. There will be a fully and completed rest for God's people. And the author here is saying in Hebrews 4 that if you don't know that, that that now rest or that not yet rest, the coming to Jesus now and the rest that brings, or the fulfilled, completed, no sin, no hindrance rest in the future, you don't know either one of those, you can have that today. You can have that today. You can have this Jesus-shaped rest when you come to Jesus. You know that rest for your soul right now, that your sin doesn't define you, that you have a new identity as a son or daughter of your heavenly father, and you're perfectly united to Jesus, and everything that's true about him, the life he lived, you get credit for that, and the death he died and the resurrection that he experienced, that's true of you as well. Your identity is not one of slavery to sin and the fatigue that brings, but relief from that and rest. Now, remember last week, we talked about that first generation of people. And they were rescued from the hand of Pharaoh and the slavery, the anti-rest, the slavery in Egypt. And God rescued them And about two seconds after they were rescued, they started complaining and turning their backs on God. And they said they wanted to go back to Egypt rather than follow God and his promises. That's verse 6. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. That's what he's talking about there in verse 6, okay? But then in verse 7... He reminds the audience of of, of the horror of this past, but there's still an opportunity to grab that rest, grab the promises of God and trust them, the promise of rest by coming to Jesus. And he's he's emphasizing this. This This is the big point. Today is the day. Seize the opportunity right now. Today is the day to decide. Don't wait. Don't procrastinate on Jesus. You can know this rest right now. You don't have to be like that old generation that were promised rest, and they're like, I don't want that rest. It's too hard to get there, and let's just go back to Egypt. He's saying, no, 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 no. You don't have to be like that, and today you can decide. Today you can decide. Look at it. This is some confusing language, so I'm going to explain this in verse 7, but you can, you'll see the point about seizing the day, today being the day. Verse 7, and he appoints a certain day, quote, today, Saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. All right, so what, what is that all about? All right, so let's break this down. I want you to understand this, okay? It's really simple. So he's basically drawing their, the, the reader's attention, the first audience, he's drawing their attention again to Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 has run all through chapters 3 and 4. We've seen that in the last few weeks. And he brings up Psalm 95 again. It's the centerpiece of these chapters. 
So when he says, look at it in verse 7, again he appoints a certain day, quote, today, saying through David so long afterward. What does he mean? Well, he's saying to the author of Hebrews, is saying to his original audience, okay, he's saying to them, hey guys, remember Psalm 95 that I'm quoting here? And Psalm 95 was, wit- was written many, many years after that first generation was judged and barred from the promised land. So he's jumping centuries of time in this one verse. So, so like he's talking about, remember those first people, promised land people, Moses, rescued from Egypt. Many, uh, many, many years later, David wrote Psalm 95. And then there's us today, many, many years later, Okay. He's jumping between those three time periods. He's saying, remember those, those ancient Israelites. But then the, David, the author of the psalm, was written many, many years later, and he told his audience many years later, hey, don't be like those guys. Don't be like those guys. He, the author, of, um, many years later, Psalm 95 is just calling out to people, remember the mistakes of the past, don't do that. That's David writing that psalm. And Hebrews is jumping just on the, on the back of David and saying, it's the same for y'all today. It's the same for you guys today. Just like David did in Psalm 95, where he called people to take the opportunity to believe today. The author of Hebrews, I'm writing to you guys, and I'm just saying the same thing. Believe today. There's still yet something you can grab today. You don't have to be like those people in the past, okay? Don't wait. Today is the day to soften your heart and enter this rest of God. So what do we have thus far? It's pretty simple. And it's, the, it's basically the argument of all of chapter 3 and chapter 4. Lack of belief in God's promises because ultimately, God's just going to give you what you want, separation from him. There's, there's judgment for that, giving you what you say you want. If you say you want to go back to Egypt, he might give you that. Trusting God and trusting him today, even when it's hard and in, when, it's, when there's suffering and, and, and confusion, just, it's worth it to keep going. It's worth it to keep going. And you can make that decision today. Don't give up like that Old Testament generation. Okay? Let's keep reading. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken of another day later on, another day of rest later on. So what's the implication of that? Verse 9. So then, as a result, implication, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for Christians, for us today. So he's basically pointing to a relationship with Jesus now and the new heavens and the new earth in the future where we will enjoy relationship with God without hindrance or sin or unbelief. So that first promised land, look at verse 8. Joshua was the one that ushered that second generation into the first promised promised land, okay? And the author is saying, that was good, but it's actually just 
a sign, a symbol, an illustration of the reality that was to come. If, for if Joshua would have given them rest, like the ultimate rest of God, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He's saying that that first promised land was not the reality. The reality was to come later. The reality, as we've seen, is found in Jesus. When Jesus says, come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, that's Jesus saying, I'm the reality. The promised land is me. Come to me. I am the promised land. So verse 9, ultimate rest, it's still there for the taking. Now let's read verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So speaking of like jumping all over in terms of the time frame, he's going way back now to the beginning of the Bible, to the beginning of all known history to creation and saying, remember, even God himself he worked on six days, and then on the seventh day, he says that he rested, meaning he stopped and he just enjoyed all that he had made and said, man, this is really, really good. And the author of Hebrews is saying, if you come to Jesus and enter into that rest, the rest of knowing God, trusting his promises, you will have that day in the future when it will all be over. The struggle will be over. Just like God rested from his creation, his work of creation, and simply enjoyed what, he was, what was made, we will rest like that for eternity. That's what the author is saying. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. There's that sense of completion. That sense of just like, yeah, we, we did what was need to, needed to be done, and now we can just rest. It's completed. The struggle, the tension is over. That's what the author is saying. Now, it's so important to remember this. Remember the whole point of the book of Hebrews in terms of the context. This is a persecuted church. This is heat of persecution like we've never known from all of us sitting in this room, okay? You can see why in the backdrop of, of that historical context, what he's writing would be so significant. He's saying today is the day of struggle and persecution, and we're going to read more about what that looks like in the coming chapters, but he's saying there is coming a day of eternal rest, be reminded of that. Focus on that. Remember that. Lean into that. Put your hope in that. It, it won't always be this way. Hold on. Stay in the game. Stay in the fight. Eternal rest is coming. And that's what he says in verse 11. He's just exhorting them. He's pleading with them. Verse 11. Let us therefore, therefore, meaning like, since what I just said is true, here's the implication. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
So he's just kind of reminding and repeating again what he said in chapters 3 and 4 here in this last verse. It kind of wraps up the section. Verse 1, he said something similar of chapter 4. I don't think it'll be on the screen, but just look at it in your Bible. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And in verse 11, it's just a similar, it's like a a pastor calling out to his people in this ancient persecuted context. He's saying we got to strive for something. Like in verse 1, it was like you should fear this falling away, just like you fear having your kids run out in the street and get hit by a car. That was verse 1. We should have this kind of fear, this kind of watching out, like paying attention to my soul. And now in verse 11, he's saying we got to strive for something. Not like we're earning anything. This isn't grace, or this isn't salvation by works. There's nothing to earn. There's nothing to prove. But there is a sense of striving, of like committing to not give up. And that does take mental energy. That takes effort in prayer. It takes effort to fight that battle in your mind, to reject the lies and embrace the truth. And that's the sense of striving here. It takes effort to to, to preach to yourself, man, reading my Bible this morning when I'm super tired, it's worth it. As opposed to just hitting snooze a couple more times. It takes effort to care for one another like this. Like, what does he say? So that no one may fall. Meaning, like, we're looking out for each other. Like, he's saying, like, let let there not be any among you that falls away. So don't let this word striving freak you out. He's not saying that you strive to earn your salvation. But if you've been saved by grace, by God, there is a putting to death of sin. There is a putting to death of unbelief. There is, is a putting to death of, of the old way and turning toward the new way as you walk with Jesus that is a form of striving, that's a form of effort that's really good that the Bible just assumes. And I want us to finally focus on the word us. Let us therefore. Let us therefore. In this context of heat and persecution and, and the temptation to give up and the temptation to be like those ancient Israelites that said, let's just go back to Egypt. That's, that's easier back there. In the midst of that temptation, he's saying, remember the us. Remember that we're in this together. And this section began back at chapter 3, verse 12. James Garcia preached this so well a couple weeks ago. But look back at verse 12 of chapter 3. It's all kind of related. It all fits together. Same emotion, same desire from the author here to these people and to us. He says in verse 12, take care, brothers, plural, right? Take care, brothers, with an S, sisters, with an S, Lest there be any of you an unbelieving, evil heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. One another, one another. See this emphasis? Take care, brothers. Take care of one another. 
exhort one another. Why? Because the stakes are high. The stakes are high. And he kind of ends this section with a similar pleading with people in in verse 11 of chapter 4. Kind of ends the section that began at 312. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The focus is we got to take care of each other. We got to take care of each other. No man or woman left behind. Like if we have a If we stick together, we have such a better chance of making it than if we were separated. We see this all the time in in the nature documentaries we watch, right? What is the, what is the, uh, you could name any predatory animal, the cheetah, the lion, the hyena. What do they do to eat? They separate from the herd, right? They get one separated, and that one dies, right? There's strength in the unity. There's strength in the numbers. We stick together. We've got such a better chance of making it. And just as a sidebar, there's two things that get Paul especially really fired up if you read his letters One is false teaching. You know what the other one is? Sowing division. He says in Titus, in light of this, in Hebrews, you can can see why. He says in Titus, warn a divisive person once, twice, and then have nothing to do with them. He doesn't use that kind of language very often, but he does it in reference to division. People stirring up division. And in light of what we've seen in the book of Hebrews, that makes total sense, doesn't it? Like, if we're, if we're not together, we're not going to make it. Like, we're going to North Africa, and we're going to visit this church that we've helped plant that's very small, just a small handful of indigenous local believers. That, that, that church is the gospel witness in that city of roughly 400,000 people. That's it. There's a lot of stake there, right? Of course, God is sovereign, but on the human side of things, there's a lot at stake there. And I think the author of Hebrews would say the same thing to them. Like, we've got to stay together. This is the only gospel witness in this city right now. And if we let, like, petty offenses conflict, we let someone come in and sow division, man, this thing is small and fragile. We can't give up. We can't give up. There's so much at stake. Our unity is a really big deal here. If we break apart in light of the pressure in this city where it's 99.99% Muslim, like if we separate and we're just going to be trying to be Christians by ourselves, it's not going to look good. God didn't wire us for that. If we break up, that will completely weaken us, which will weaken our witness in the city that's desperate to hear the beauty and rest of coming to Jesus. Right? You feel that? 
And as, this, as Hebrews continues to unfold, we're going to see over and over again him just say in different ways what verse 11 says. Let us, therefore, we're going to do this together. We're going to do our striving together to enter rest, to believe the promises of God and not be like ancient Israelites. We're going to, therefore, together fight against falling by that same sort of disobedience. Over and over again, he's going to emphasize this. So many implications from this that, that we don't have time to unpack this morning, but things like just division is horrible. And how words of life to encourage one another is a really big deal. Just things like that are so important. Why community, why church, why, why not sleeping in on Sunday morning is a big deal. We're going to see this over and over again. It's not just me thinking about the struggle of faith. It's us. It's we collectively thinking about the struggle of faith. Think about if you were committed to run a marathon. I know a lot of you have done this. But just think about the difference. This, this will you know, help us really embrace what he's talking about here today. Like, let's just say you're like, all right, I, I guess I'm going to go run a marathon. I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to, you know, put a lot of thought into it. Might not train that much. I'm just going to go run a marathon. All by myself. What are the chances that you finish? Well, you might. But compared with Man, I got this group of people, and we're going to do our training together, and we're going to commit that we're all going to finish. And it's going to be hard. Every, every single time I've talked to someone who's run a marathon, I've never done it, but there's a point at which, man, this gets really, really hard. And if you're all by yourself, just doing it by yourself, and no one knows about it, and no one's watching, and no one's taking care of each other, of course you would quit. But if, man, if, if we're going to stick together and we're going to cheer one another on and we're going to run next to each other and we're going to encourage one another, like, almost always those people finish, right? There's a, there's a similar illustration from my own life that I always think about when we talk about perseverance and the importance of community as it relates to perseverance in the Christian life. My boys and I have done this annual father-son trip that was initiated by one of my best friends, and he just kind of wrote me into it uh, 13 years ago. And we get together every year. Um, it started when, um, like, Emery was, like, five, and, you know, he's 17 today. Or, no, he's not yet 17. Where are you at? 16, that's right. Yeah, I'm a good dad. Um, I can do math. Love you, bud. Um, so anyway, we've been doing this trip for a long time, and these, these young boys have all become men now, and 13, 14 years later, and, uh, and they, you know, have just grown up together, and we've had some really cool experiences. We've climbed um, some high mountains together. Uh, we've done this three times. So you can see this picture. Um, that's uh, little Emmers on the, on the left. This was about eight years ago, I think, Taylor and me on the, on the left side there. I don't remember. Do you remember which one this was? Was this um, Hallett's Peak, maybe? Ty, are you familiar with Hallett's Peak? No? It's, there's well, a bunch of 14ers in Colorado. It's one of the 14ers. Anyway, so, you know, you take off at about 10,000 feet. 
the peak is around 14,000 feet. It's like one of those deals where you go all day up and back. And so um, we're on our way. We're above the tree line, probably only 1,000 feet left. And my buddy in the middle there on the, on the top um, with the hat and the sunglasses, his name's Eric, he starts just not feeling well. And he starts, you know, the pace starts to slow down. And it slows down to like a shuffle. And he's just not, not feeling it. And, you know, when you're up that high, it's not uncommon to have altitude sickness. And when altitude sickness hits, it's not that great. You can have a lot of very strange symptoms. I've heard of people hallucinating, um, just gibberish, talking crazy, having just some nasty GI issues. And you can imagine what kind of problems that would create uh, when there's, you're up at 13,000 feet and there's no trees and there's nowhere to hide. It's a problem, right? And that, the la- latter example was what Eric experienced. And so he's having a hard time up at 13,000 feet. The whole crew is, is up ahead of us. The boys are excited to make it to the summit. Dads want to keep up with the boys. I'm staying behind with Eric, and I'm just sitting there going, Eric, we cannot, like, call the helicopter to get you off this mountain. Like, like are we going to keep going? I don't know if we should. This does not seem wise to me. But Eric, uh, one of the reasons I love him so much is he is a man of determination. And um, he had a little, uh, little incident on the side of the mountain with some GI issues. And, uh, and we kept going, shuffling, just, you know, just old man pace, you know what I mean? Just shuffling up this mountain. And little by little, little by little, um, we made it. We got the, the photographic evidence. He's smiling even. Um, but why? Hey, if, it was, if it just would have been him and I, I mean, you guys get the point. You know where this illustration is going to land. If it was just going to be him and I, we would have turned around. But because of the group, because of the group, because we wanted to say that we accomplished this together, we made it. He made it. And I tell you what, when you get there, if you've never done it, I'd recommend you do it. The view is so worth it. The view is the reward. And it's the same with our faith. Paul writes like this in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's just Paul saying the view is worth it. When you get there together, the view will be worth it. Like when when you get on that mountain and you see that view, the struggle just melts away. Because you're so enraptured by the view, by the glory of what you see. So what is the author of Hebrews saying? He's saying, let us, let us, let us. This is our collective responsibility. Let's strive to keep going on this mountain of faith. If we stick together, we can make it. We will make it. We have to make it. 
and we have the greatest motivation in the world. When we get to the top of the mountain, the new heavens and new earth, there we can rest forever because of what Jesus has done for us, the cross and the empty tomb, and it will be so worth it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these exhortations that we've seen these last few weeks in Hebrews 3 and 4. Lord, I pray that it would be preparing us to have perseverance like this, that you desire for your people, that we will keep going, that we will focus on what you have promised as we endure hardship. Lord, would you give us that faith by the power of your Holy Spirit and your word. In Jesus' name, amen.